0: A very wise God, our God, knows that uh, uh, the Lord Jesus lived and worked and spoke some 2,000 years removed from us. And a very wise God has decided, therefore, he must superintend the passage over the years of a very reliable written document, the Gospel Accounts so as to bring you and I up to date about the life and works of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Almighty God has not left us, you see, without a reliable testimony of the one who we bow before and worship and depend on, though what he did, he did 2,000 years ago. What we are about to do, beginning tonight, is to embark on an examination of one of those eyewitness accounts, one of those gospel accounts of the Lord Jesus. Why? Well, uh, because one of the most important questions to ask and then answer correctly is this, who is Jesus Christ? The eyewitness account uh, that we will study over the next, I don't know, maybe even years, uh, no rush, Uh, is the account written by someone named John. He, John, firmly believed that this Jesus was God. And he took 21 chapters to persuade the rest of us to believe the same. It's the Gospel of John. We are tonight going to begin to look at John's written testimony. Uh, But before we do that, before we consider God's, uh, John's eyewitness account, we should take some time to consider John himself. Who is he? Well, to be brief, he's a Jewish fisherman. That's who he is. He did not have the credentials of one like Dr. Peter Williams, went to no seminary, was part of no academic elite. He was a smelly Galilean fisherman. Wherever he went, you could tell what his vocation was. He was a Jewish fisherman. His father was named Zebedee. His mother was named Salome. He had a brother named James. Well, if that's all there is to him, why should the writings of a Jewish fisherman command our attention 2,000 years removed from his eyewitness account? Why should we spend time reading what a Jewish fisherman had to say? Well, here's the reason. That Jewish fisherman was called into a peculiarly close relationship with this Jesus, who is the subject of the 21 chapters of John's account. Uh, This Jesus called him into a, a level of intimacy not available to most. In fact, John was part of a special circle of 12 we know to be the Apostles, Of Jesus Christ. And even within those 12, there was an even closer, more intimate circle of which John was one. In fact, he is referred to, in his own account, by the Lord as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This John is fully equipped to testify about the character of this Jesus because he was closer to him than most. Do you know that John wrote not only this biography, this story of Jesus, the Gospel of John, he wrote in total five New Testament books. That's really something. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then he wrote finally the final book of the Bible, the Revelation given to John. He wrote five New Testament books. He wrote an account of the life of Christ at a time when thinking about Christ was getting out of hand. Uh, There was much false teaching about who this Jesus is. By the way, the distinctive of every aberrant religious group, every group we would define as a cult, the distinctive is an aberrant notion about who Christ is. If you want to determine whether something is an orthodox Christian faith group or not, see what it has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. Every group we would define legitimately as a cult has a distorted notion of who this Christ is. Well, cults, uh, even the ones we have today, were preceded even 2,000 years ago by similar religious groups who distorted the very nature and person of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Now, when John wrote this, there already were in existence three other eyewitness accounts of Jesus, the one written by Matthew and then Mark and and by Luke. So why do we need John's report? Very interestingly, what John tells us about contains material not found in the other three gospel accounts. In fact, 90% of what we will read in John's gospel is unique to him. He wrote his gospel about 20 to 30 years after the others. And in 20 to 30 years, oh my goodness, that's sufficient time for there to be the rise of very discrepant notions of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and John decided I've got to do something about it. I've got to confront these cult groups and I have got to confirm the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got to persuade non-believers of who he is and I have got to reinforce an orthodox perspective amongst believers with reference to who their savior in fact is. John wrote this When he was in a place called Ephesus. It's a real place. It's in uh, modern-day western Turkey. Some here perhaps have been to Ephesus. I was there. I had the privilege some years ago. It's a fascinating place to be. It's a very real place. John was there in Ephesus at the time. It was between the years 80 and 90 AD. We can't, I think, be too more precise about it, but that gets us close enough. In other words, he was writing his gospel about 50 years after the time when Jesus was on earth and walking hand in hand with John, the beloved apostle, about 50 years removed from the situation. That makes John, at the time of the writing of his story, his account, makes him an old man. In fact, he only has a few years to live uh, at the time of the writing of this gospel. He will die in just a few years after he wrote this. I suppose he knew it was coming, such is the way with men and women. We are born, we live, we die. That's the way it is. But what he wanted to do before he faced the inevitability of his passing from this reality to the ultimate reality, he wanted to leave even folks such as you and I with a very, very clear record of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, so he said about the business of writing, conforming to writing, 21 chapters that tell us about the Lord. Okay, that's enough about John. Now let's just dive in and take a look uh, at what he says. John chapter 1, that's where we are, good place to start. John chapter 1, verse 1, and that's all we'll look at tonight. John chapter 1, verse 1. I think you'll see, it's enough listen to this in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god simple clear plain english Three declarative statements. If you look at it, here's the first in the beginning was the Word. Here's the second, and the Word was with God. Here's the third, and the Word was God. We're done, amen. Let's go home. I mean, it's clear, oh, but it's deep and profound. And such is the paradox uh, of the Gospel of John, as you will see. It's uh, clear enough so that even a youngster can know of and understand John 3.16. But it's deep enough so so that uh, one of the breadth of knowledge, Dr. Peter Williams, can spend the better part of his adult life plumbing the depths of the Gospel of John. It's so clear and so deep that someone said the Gospel of John is like a pool of water in which even a youngster can wade, but in which an elephant can swim. There's something in it, you see, therefore, for all of us. We'll see the clarity of the words in John's eyewitness account, but we'll also see how profound and deep it is. He begins with this phrase. In the beginning was the Word. His readers in the first century, his readers today, I think, would be compelled to ask, just on the basis of this statement, the beginning of what? He said, in the beginning was the word. You would ask, logically, beginning of what? Ah. The beginning before there were beginnings. In timeless eternity, before everything that began was, then the word was. Before the creation of the heavens and the earth, prior to this, at the time preceding, all that we know was the word. At the point of time when all created things began, the Word already was. There was a point in time when everything in our space-time dimension began. But the Word never began. The Word was. Always. These uh, opening words by John, don't they bring us back to the opening words of the Bible? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is saying God created the heavens and the earth and all it contains, but the Word already was. The Word was not created. The Word had pre-existence. The Word never began. The Word always was. John is building the suspense. I'm telling you, his readers were asking, tell us then, John, who or what is the Word? And uh, to relieve the suspense here tonight, let's do something which I don't recommend. Let's skip and go to verse 14 just for a second. And we'll find out who the Word is. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth can you tell me who is verse 14 referring to that's jesus so now we know the word who john is speaking of in verse 1 is none other than the lord jesus christ which leads to this question If that's the case, John, why are you playing games with the word? Instead of opening with, in the beginning was the word, why don't you say, in the beginning was Jesus? Why don't you just make it easy on us and then we go home, we're done. Why do you open in such a perplexing and mysterious way? Why are you denying the reality, the obvious reality, that the word is a reference to Jesus? Well, he's not going to deny it. But you know what he's doing? Sequentially, incrementally, step by step, he's building his case. He knows who his audience is. You know who he's writing to? Everybody. But in particular, he's writing to non-Jews and Jews. He's speaking to Greeks. And he's speaking to Jews. Now, these are two groups who have little or nothing in common in John's day. And they have, oh, a lot of things to separate them, even in this particular day. And, uh, and John is aware of the fact that he, he has to persuade both disparate groups that Jesus is the word. And he is aware of this. Both groups, though they be different, had a notion in common. They both had a perspective, both the Greeks and the Jews, on the word. So if John opened with this, in the beginning was Jesus the Messiah, the Greek readers would say, what? They would have no idea what he's. doing. T- they have no concept, no frame of reference. But if he says, in the beginning was the word, ah, they wouldn't have heard it that way. This is how they would hear it. In the beginning was the Lagos, L-O-G-O-S. That's what they heard. In the beginning was the Lagos. Now he has them. Why? Because Greek philosophers in the day were persuaded of this. The universe is going to devolve into chaos. It's subject to change and flux. And the cosmos will be characterized by Chaos apart from the orderliness imposed upon it by the Lagos. Three Greek words: cosmos, chaos, Lagos. Who was the Lagos in the mind of the Greeks? Not a who, it was an it. It was an impersonal force uh, that held the otherwise haphazard universe together. The force is uh, responsible for. The beginning of all that is, and what's more, the force uh, keeps what is from spinning out of control. It is the Lagos. We worship the Lagos. And so John was speaking their language, and so he's beginning uh, on familiar terms, and his goal is this. He wants to show the Greeks of his day that the Lagos is the Lamb. He wants to show the Greeks that the impersonal logos, the abstract conceptual force, is a person. The logos is Jesus. Uh, And they are listening. Now, what about the Jews? Well, the Jews have this notion that when you see the phrase, the word of God, it's often a, a synonym for God. The word of God in Judaism means God. Uh, John, himself being Jewish, his name was Yochanan. Yochanan, understanding Jewish thinking, essentially said, Jesus is God. The word of God, which was, Jesus is God. So you see, he came to Greeks and said, the logos, the power which made and sustains this ordered universe, is Jesus. And at the same time, John came to Jews and said, the word of God is Jesus. And so John tells both Greeks and Jews that in Jesus Christ, this creating and sustaining God, this, 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 this abstraction, need not be that. He came to earth and fleshed. It was quite an astonishing statement to make to both uh, people, uh, groups. John tells them, uh, speculate no longer about who the Lagos is. Make no mistake about it, he became embodied, he became flesh. He's telling them to look at Jesus is to see God. He's beginning to build that point. So he starts with, in the beginning was the word. Do you notice he does not say, in the beginning was the mind? He does not say, in the beginning was the thought. I mean, there's an obvious reason. You can't know what's in a person's mind. You can't know what a person is thinking unless that person expresses otherwise unknown thoughts in words. Words are meant to communicate. Ah, Jesus is meant to communicate truth about the unseen God we would otherwise not have available to us. I can't know the mind of God nor what he thinks through speculation and philosophy of any kind I can only know those things if they're expressed in words. Hence, John begins, in the beginning was the word. God in flesh came not to be secretive and hidden, not so that we would squeeze meaning out of him. No, that we would clearly see him in the person of Jesus Christ. So he begins with this marvelous phrase. In the beginning was the word and now the second phrase. It gets even more astonishing to the original readers. I hope it astonishes us. In the beginning was the Word, and what's more, the Word was with God. Now we lose something in the English, because in the original language it actually means the Word had a face-to-face relationship with God. Face-to-face. It means unbroken, unbridled intimacy. It means the Word and God were inseparable. They were intimates. They were close. From eternity past, this means there has been the closest of connections between the Word and God. Only Jesus, therefore, can really tell us what God is like, you see. And what God wants. And what's on God's heart. And what's in God's mind. Only the Word who from eternity past had a face-to-face encounter with God could express to us the otherwise unknown, unseen things pertaining to God. Now, i got to tell you, all this is quite astonishing to the first century readers. This is all new, and yet there's more. First declaration is astonishing. In the beginning was the Word. Second, perhaps even more so, And the Word was with God. But when John caps it off with his closing statement, their jaws drop. And the Word was God. What? Make up your mind, John. First you say the Word was with God. Now you're saying the Word who was with God is God. What are you talking about? How could it be that the Word would be with God and yet be God at the same time? God and the Word, claims John, are not each other, yet they are both God. They both possess the quality which only God possesses, pre-existence. Neither God nor the Word had a beginning. Neither was created. Their existence is not contingent on anything or anyone greater. They are. They both possess the quality of divinity, but how could this be? How could the Word and God be different, yet both God? The Word, we now know it's Jesus, is the Son of God. He is God, and the Father is God. But John says, (laughs) yet they are not each other. The Father and the Son are equally God, yet they are distinct from one another. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father, and yet says John, they are equally God. And it'll even get worse as we go on when we're introduced to God, the Holy Spirit. Making God, from John's perspective, one manifested in three persons. Can you imagine how this took the first century readers? Can you see why God has John build, build, build the case for Christ progressively? Can you see how he's doing it even for us today? All this is unbelievably astonishing. Unimaginable. God came here. God came near. God is the Lagos. God is the Word. The Word became the enfleshed man, Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, always was. Jesus was with the Father. The Father and the Son are distinct. Yet the Father and the Son are both God. Can you see how one verse, I'm sure they're going like this. Slow down, John. Way, way too much to take in. But as astonishing as are those claims by John, I think this is the most astonishing thing of all. I mentioned to you something of the intimacy shared by both Father and the Word, the Son, from eternity past. I mentioned to you the Word, Jesus, shared face-to-face intimacy with the Father. He had unbroken intimate communion with the Father. And he loved it. There was nothing that separated the two. The Son loved intimacy with the father and yet he gave it up he became embodied in flesh he came here and having a body he allowed people to spit on that very body he uh, permitted people to humiliate that body and to whip that body uh, he allowed people to strip naked that body. And finally, he cooperated with people's interest in piercing through that body. Here's the astonishing thing of all why? Why? Labor over the mystery. <laughs> Of the humanity and divinity of Christ until the time of his return. There's enough to labor over. Labor over the reality of the Trinity and how it works together. Be my guest. But the most astonishing thing. The most incomprehensible and unimaginable thing. Is that the word became flesh. And went through all he did. For one such as you and I. Why? I know the answer. And it was given to me. Before the service tonight, I see that lady right there is Linda Watson. Linda, that's what you get. Don't tell me anything ever. Um, Linda has a Bible. Could I have it? Thank you. This is Linda Mike Watson. Mike is our newly appointed chairman of the deacons, so I have to be nice to him just until his tour of duty is over. Uh, So this is Linda's Bible, and um, it came to be in the hands of her uh, four-year-old granddaughter. And uh, as four-year-olds are prone to do, she took up a pen and wrote in grandma's Bible uh, simple words. You can see it. It looks like the script of a four-year-old, but profound words. They answered the question I put to you. The most astonishing mystery of all. Why would this pre incarnate, pre existent deity who is the Word, why would the Logos become embodied and submit himself to the degradation, humiliation, crucifixion, and all the rest that I mentioned to you? A four year old has the answer Jesus and God loves you. John's Gospel, a pool in which a child can wade and in which an elephant can swim. A young child has the answer to one of the cosmic questions of all. Why, God, would you have subjected yourself to all that you did for one such as me? I repeat the words, is it Emily? Emma, who's your granddaughter, I repeat the words of Emma. Jesus, And God loves you. A four-year-old knows they're different and they're the same. (laughs) A four-year-old somehow has come to grips with the fact that Jesus and God have authority. They're both divine. They're both transcendent. And both of them, though they're equally God both of them have you and i in common jesus and god loves you emma is a profound theologian listen folks don't let that which is inexplicable cause you to stumble over that which is obvious jesus loves me this i know for the bible tells me so eventually maybe We'll get to perhaps the most popular verse in all the Bible, John 3:16. I don't know, it seems like eons away from where we are. We'll take it by faith that we'll get there. But if we don't, you know it already. It's an answer like that which Emma gave to this profound and astonishing question: why Lagos, pre-existent deed, you who enjoyed such unbroken fellowship with the Father, why would you have sacrificed it all for one such as me? For God. So loved, loved to such an extent. The world, not what the world does, not the ways of the world. No, those who populate the world. For God so loved the world, how is it demonstrated? That he gave. He didn't write songs about love. <laughs> he put shoe leather on his loving heart. He became a giver. The... Uh, Most extraordinary giver of all time. For God so loved those who populate the world that he gave his, what? Only begotten. One of a kind, irreplaceable. He doesn't have another on the shelf. Only begotten. Son, not sing, son. Why? That, this is my favorite word in all the Bible, that whosoever. That's the most inclusive and inviting word in all of scripture. In this day and age when we're all so quickly offended about being left out, whosoever leaves out no one. Are you black? You're part of the whosoever. Are you white? You're part of the whosoever. Are you old? Are you young? Are you male? Are you female? Are you Jewish? Are you Gentile? (laughs) Whosoever would believe in him, would not perish, what's the option, but have everlasting life. This is the most astonishing thing in John's gospel, that he would love ones such as you and I. Folks, if the Lord tarries and we get through 21 chapters of John, uh, you will be more persuaded by John than ever before that faith you may have placed in the lagos the word jesus is not in vain and i hope you will be persuaded even before we get through with the 21 chapters that if you choose even now to put your faith in him it will not be in vain there's a basis for it it's not a blind leap from logic to faith no there's a basis For you to believe that Jesus is God who came to be man so as to suffer and die for men and women such as you and I. Could I ask you to stand uh, to your feet as we draw to uh, a close Um, and invite you to the Connection Center if you would like to pray with someone about being connected. With the eternal word of God, Jesus, in a way you never have before. People in the Connection Center will be able to introduce you to the way to be rightly related to the word of God, the Lord Jesus. So don't leave without uh, availing yourself of that opportunity. And I'd like for us to leave on a, uh, we got a little uh, theological and stuff like that. Uh, But I like the simple words of this little song which I'd like for us to close with. I remember the first time I heard it. I was in the military uh, overseas and uh, a Christian artist came over to entertain the troops. That kind of deal. I was in the crowd and I heard this song and it just took me. I was a new Christian at the time and it just got me. In fact I told my wife when I die I'd like someone to sing this at my funeral. So please remind her if she, she forgets. She's Right now, she's focused on the life insurance part of it all. But, you know, I want this song. It's a beautiful thing. John's objective is to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Don't you see? That's his objective. He wants us to look full in his wonderful face. Why? So the concepts and the hardships and the adversities of life will grow strangely dim. How? In the light of his glory and grace. You know this one? Let's sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. What'll happen? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. Thank you, O eternal, pre existent word of God, for loving us in such an astounding such an astonishing way that you were willing to come here, near and fleshed, and to be subjected to such abuse and humiliation and all the rest so as to pay for us in full measure the penalty for our sin. Thank you, O God, for the fact that your ways are incomprehensible. Your nature is beyond what our finite minds can come to grips with. Yet we, just like Emma, can understand. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. We're persuaded already by John's testimony that you are God in the flesh, who came to suffer and die for us, who rose up from death, so that you, being an eternal being, have authority to bequeath to us, contingent on our faith, eternal life. And I pray there be not one who would leave here tonight without saying, come into my life, Lord Jesus. I've sinned, and therefore I'm separated. But I want a face-to-face relationship with you, the likes of which you had from before time with your Father. Oh, God. Help me to be reconciled to your Father through you and what you provided for me on the cross. Take me today, just as I am, Lord Jesus, as an adopted son or daughter. Grant me the privilege of walking with you now and into eternity. In this, I, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks.